Content warning. This series contains mentions of mental health issues, suicide, sexual abuse, and other sensitive subjects. This is your host, Andrew Pledger, and this is Surviving Bob Jones University, a Christian Cult. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior. I thought it would be important to highlight certain parts of the Grace Report. And this report is available online for anyone to read, and it is over 300 pages long. So I obviously cannot read the whole thing to you, but I looked over it and I highlighted a lot of sections that I think it's important for people to know about. But again, you can read the report yourself, and the link should be in the show notes. But One part I highlighted was, first, just to set the scene, was the investigation. So the report says that the GRACE investigation team included a lead investigator, a mental health professional, a seminary professor, a project coordinator, and a project director. After BJU and GRACE signed the engagement agreement, the GRACE team had its first meeting in December of 2012. During this first meeting, the GRACE team outlined the investigation process, assigned team member responsibilities, identified issues that were within the scope of the investigation, and created a confidential investigation survey. In February of 2013, the GRACE team visited the BJU campus for the purpose of meeting with several BJU administrators, touring the campus and museum and gallery, and attending a campus chapel service. Grace had the opportunity to have lunch on campus with some BJU administrative officials. Later that day, the team had introductory meetings with Dr. Jim Berg and Dr. Stephen Jones. During the course of this 22-month investigation, the Grace team engaged in a variety of ongoing investigative tasks, including, but not limited to, responding to emails and phone calls from witnesses, reviewing surveys, scheduling witness interviews, reviewing and finalizing witness notes, reviewing witness statements, requesting and reviewing follow-up information, reporting cases to law enforcement, and posting periodic updates. Throughout this process, the GRACE team also engaged in ongoing and regular communication with each other through phone conferences and emails. And another section states that one interview with the BJU employee took place in several daily sessions that lasted approximately four to five hours per day over a two-week period. Grace conducted and completed a total of 116 interviews. Of these, approximately 50 interviewees self-identified as victims of sexual offenses. The remaining 66 Individuals included interviews of current and former BJU employees, former students, pastors, counselors, family members, or other individuals having relevant knowledge of an issue arising out of the scope of this investigation. Another section states that, Therefore, this report has limited the specific naming of any individuals to a limited number of BJU employees who had the greatest impact on the handling of abuse disclosures. Because they fall outside the investigation's scope, known offenders of alleged sexual crimes have not been named in this report, but Grace reported them to the appropriate law enforcement jurisdiction. 
It is Grace's prayer that all victims and perpetrators of sexual abuse receive the justice they each so desperately deserve. The final report identifies a small number of Bob Jones University employees by name. Other individuals have been identified by title. These individuals have been identified either by name or by title for several reasons. In some cases, the individual's title was directly relevant to how the disclosure of abuse was handled. Providing a person's title also benefits readers by providing needed context and clarity. Grace considered a number of factors in determining whether or not the person would be identified by name. So it says that the person's role or position at the university, the person's decision-making authority, the person's opportunity to impact cultural attitudes or beliefs about sexual victimization, the length of time the person has spent at the university, the person's teachings, writings, preachings, and or counseling relative to a matter bearing upon the scope of the investigation, the reported impact of the person's teaching, writing, preaching, and or counseling upon the victims of sexual abuse. Another section states that the survey sought members of the BJU community who met at least one of three criteria. The survey sought participants who, number one, personally experienced child or adult sexual abuse prior to or during their involvement at Bob Jones Academy or Bob Jones University, and or two, have a personal relationship with someone who experienced child or adult sexual abuse prior to or during their involvement at the academy or university, and or three, have first-hand information related to the university's or academy's teachings or practices about sexual abuse from any time in the university's history. Another thing I want to emphasize is that this report states that the survey was confidential but not anonymous. Now, the next section of this report that I highlighted is the summary of findings. So the report states that the survey first examined the time frame in which the sexual abuse known or experienced by survey respondents occurred. Table 4 presents a summary for the complete investigative sample and for the abuse survivor subgroup. The abuse was equally likely to have occurred before the victim was associated with the university or academy as during time of the victim's tenure at BJU. Another section states, and it says, and I quote, the heart of the investigation centered on BJU's response to known cases of alleged sexual abuse. Thus, the survey focused on two components of such a response. The first component was a global description of response to the victim on a scale ranging from very supportive to very hurtful. And another section says that the second component of BJU's response to abuse disclosures focused upon if and how BJU representatives advise victims to report the abuse to the authorities. And the report states that among 66 respondents from the abuse survivor subgroup who answered the survey question, the percentage of responses were very similar to those from the investigative sample. Approximately 7.6% of abuse victims described BJU personnel as encouraging a, a police report while 25.8% reported that BJU directing them not to make a police report. Another 21% said that BJU discouraged them from reporting their abuse to the police. Thus, nearly 
37.7% or 31 survey takers described BJU personnel as either directing them not to make a police report or discouraging them from doing so. The survey also asked students whether the abuse that was known to BJU representatives was actually ever reported to law enforcement. Approximately 17.3% of survey takers from the investigative sample, so 28 of 162, indicated that a police report was made. Again, 28 of 162 indicated that a police report was made. In another section, the report states that finally the survey takers were asked to characterize the general attitude towards victims of sexual abuse communicated by administrators, faculty members, and others representing BJU. 27.5% of the investigative sample respondents and 20.6% of the abuse survivor subgroup described the university's general attitude to be loving and compassionate. This contrasted with the 55.9% of the investigative sample and 61.7% of abuse survivor subgroup who characterized the attitudes of BJU representative toward victims of sexual abuse to be blaming and disparaging. So in another section of the report, a victim talks about their concern about BJU's response to sexual abuse. And in this report, the victim states, I love BJU. My dad went there. My grandfather went there. Please, please, please don't go easy on them. Attitudes on sexual abuse must change. Please know that these people are extremely scary. You will be dealing with a lot of people who are fearful to speak. Even I am fearful to fill out this survey, but I want my friend to get the justice that she deserves. I cannot bring justice. I can only seek it. And in another section of this survey, there are people who it says they are in vocal support of BJU. And it states that I believe the overarching mission of BJU to be pure, Christ-honoring, and well-meaning of all its students and faculty. And though I may not agree with some of the nuances of how this is accomplished, I still believe the mission is one that is sincerely and honestly driven. Another person said, and I quote, I never knew anyone who did not have an attitude of sorrow and or compassion for someone who was a victim of, of abuse. I never had a conversation with representatives, administrators, or faculty about this subject. Another person said, and I quote, I don't remember it ever being discussed. However, all my personal experiences with administration were dealt with lovingly and compassionately. Another person states, during my time at BJU, the staff was fair, slash kind, slash loving, and I know if I felt comfortable enough to share my story, they would have assisted me with biblical comfort and counsel. So, in contrast to all these positive statements, I then want to share the, the statistic. And the report states that over 60% of survey takers who self-identified as abuse victims describe the general attitude of BJU towards victims as one of blame and disparagement. Over a third of abuse victims say they did not report their abuse to anyone at BJU, and over one half who declined to disclose cited BJU teachings about sexual abuse as a reason of not seeking help. So again, I want to emphasize, 60% of these survey takers felt that BJU had an attitude of blame and disparagement. 
And in the next section of the Grace Report, it states, The following viewpoints from individual survey takers and their comments related to BJU's teachings and practices that inhibit abuse victims from disclosing their abuse. And a victim states, and I quote, that a woman who was raped or sexually abused somehow brought it on herself, that it is not acceptable to talk about sexual abuse. The cause of Christ will somehow suffer if news of abuse gets out to the world. Another victim states, abuse victims are considered second-rate Christians. And another surveyor states, Women and girls are taught they must confess the part of sexual abuse they enjoyed, that they probably enticed the abuser. Another surveyor states, I was abused from the ages of 6 to 14 by my grandfather. When I went for counseling, I was told, did you repent for your part of the abuse? Did your body respond favorably? If it did, you need to repent. You are bitter and care more about your pain than the salvation of your family. You should have never gone to the police because it tore your family apart, and that's your fault. You love yourself more than you love God, and that is why you are struggling. And on and on it goes. Another surveyor states, I would like to add that the vast majority of those who reported sexual abuse of any kind were immediately disbelieved until it was proven. And many times, even then, they were viewed as having suspicious motives for seeking justice. In another part of the report, it says the survey findings support a possible conclusion that BJU representatives may have sometimes discouraged the reporting of sexual crimes to the proper authorities. Specifically, 47% of survey takers who self-identified as abuse victims stated that BJU personnel either directed them not to make a please report or discouraged them from doing so. These survey comments relate to the issue of abuse victims being discouraged from making police reports. A survey taker states, and I quote, Victims heard consistently from chapel speakers and faculty slash staff that abusers should be forgiven, that they bore the sin of bitterness, and that they should not report abusers. Another survey taker states, deal with your own sin. Keep knowledge within the church. Another survey taker states, and I quote, it's best not to make a big deal out of this for the good of the school. Another survey taker states, a person in administration who knew that I was assaulted by one of their preacher boys stated that I would destroy this godly man's education and future if I reported the crime. Another survey taker states, I received a slip in my P.O. box to report to the stage following a specific chapel service. At that time, doctors Bob Jr. and the third told me that they were sorry such a thing happened but that I now had the choice to honor God by my response and not be selfish in sharing the experience with others and gaining inappropriate attention for this school. So now in a, another section of the Grace Report, this is in Chapter 3, and this is it's called Institutional Responses to Victims of Sexual Violence. So, the Grace Report states that throughout the investigation, top BJU authorities consistently and repeatedly stated that victims of sexual crime are not responsible for the abuse they suffered. 
However, some current and former students and faculty reported that they heard various BJU representatives communicate messages that place blame upon victims for the sexual crime they suffered. The following chapter examines this line of tension and the reports Grace heard during this investigation and is divided into two parts. Part 1 explores various reported messages that communicated at least some responsibility to victims for being sexually assaulted, and then Part 2 explores counseling teachings and methodologies that victims reportedly experienced as blame. So in Part 1 of this report, of this section of Chapter 3, Investigation Findings, it states that a number of individuals indicated that various BJU representatives, such as counselors, teachers, and chapel speakers, blamed victims for the occurrence of abuse they suffered. Some of these complaints included, and the first survey taker states, Victims seem to be treated in such a way that implicitly blamed them for the perpetrator's actions. Another survey taker states, BJU admin definitely held the view that a victim was always at least partially responsible even if just a tiny part, and had the greatest obligation to deal with that tiny responsible part, as well as repenting of hatred for the perpetrator. Another surveyor states, In this environment, it is very common to blame the victim and take the side of the perpetrator. Another surveyor states that they were always made to feel like they were at fault. Another survey taker states, the kind of culture that is there is that you hide it. We protect our own, and there had to have been a reason why a boy slash man did this to you. Another survey taker states, I do not think the abuse-enabling environment at Bob Jones is intentional. It is, however, incredibly harmful. The strict power hierarchy and victim-blaming narratives make it attractive and easy for abusers to operate undetected, never being held accountable. Victims are blamed. Another survey taker states, If a girl is raped, she must have done something to provoke it. It was always made to be the woman's fault. We were stumbling blocks to the men. And the Gray Support states that in addition, some participants reported hearing some of the following comments from BJU representatives. One survey taker states that language and or teaching that suggested that the victim of sexual abuse was to blame for the actions inflicted upon them by the sexual predator. Another survey taker states that a woman who was raped or sexually abused somehow brought it on herself. Another survey taker states that they referred to the sexual abuse as a period of bad decisions. Another survey taker states, What did you do to bring this about? Describe in detail what happened to you. When I refused to give the details, I was then told I was lying about everything. Another survey taker states, Deal with your own sin. Another survey taker said that I have heard comments made in a classroom situation that accuse victims of sexual abuse, take responsibility for their sin, and just get over it and on with their lives. In my time at BJU, I heard remarks in chapel and door meetings that were accusatory or degrading to victims of abuse. 
In another section, the report states that some former students reported, for example, that comments on sexual abuse were rare if they occurred at all. A survey taker states, I don't remember it ever being discussed. However, all my personal experiences with administration were dealt with lovingly and compassionately. Another person states, I do not recall this being a subject of conversation. Another survey taker states, I was not aware of this issue coming up when I was at BJU. Another person states, it was not discussed in six years at the university and grad school. Another person states, in my time at BJU, sexual abuse was never a specific issue either discussed or addressed. Another person states, I never heard them address it. Another person states, I never heard the issue of sexual abuse disclosed in any way. I did hear many sermons, comments, etc. about sexual impropriety and sex outside of marriage. So in this section after this, which is an introduction analysis, and the report states, clearly different people can respond differently to the same messages and environment. One way to understand the differences in perceptions is to keep in mind that many victims of sexual abuse suffer from guilt and self-blame as common effects of sexual victimization. This is often due to the deliberate blame-shifting strategies that perpetrators employ to ensure the victim's silence. Having already internalized poisonous beliefs about their culpability and unworthiness, abuse victims are often particularly sensitive to sermon and classroom teachings that reinforce the condemnation and despondency they struggle with daily. As a result, many abuse victims are sensitized to perceive and remember victim-blaming-slash-perpetrator-exonerating attitudes and teachings that individuals without such life experiences fail to notice. In more concrete terms, abuse victims may be able to detect toxic victim-blaming-slash-perpetrator-exonerating attitudes and highly diluted concentrations that non-abused individuals may lack the sensitivity to detect. Another section states, although victim-blaming-slash-perpetrator-exonerating teachings are toxic to the entire community, sometimes only abuse victims are in a position to really sound the alarm. So such teachings not only harm those who experience sexual victimization, but they also harm the broader community. Another section states, no one should discount the investigation participants who share positive experiences at BJU. And in parentheses, it states, most of whom did not identify themselves as victims of sexual abuse. And the next sentence states, without question, many alumni, students, faculty, and staff had wonderful experiences there. Likewise, no one should discount the investigation participants who shared about the pain and suffering they experienced at BJU and how those experiences negatively impacted them. I want to state before I move on to the next section is that two things can be true. There are a lot of people who had wonderful experiences at BJU, and there are also people who had terrible experiences at BJU and experienced abuse. And I've had someone say to me online that it's all in your attitude. You just have to have a good attitude and you'll enjoy BJU, and that is not true. And again, it has that victim-blaming narrative. So this is something that's going to be covered in this series, but what influences your experiences at BJU is a complex thing. Again, if you come in with abuse and you hear these narratives, that's going to affect you. 
And there are harmful leaders at BJU. So some students do not come in contact with harmful leaders. Others do. That definitely changes your experience. I think also the teachers you come in contact with, there are some teachers there that perpetuate toxic teachings. There are those that do not. And again, I think also the timing of when you're at BJU, the culture influences what BJU talks about a lot. So there are times when BJU might be more anti-LGBTQ plus than other times. So there's always this narrative of, oh, just change your attitude. Just do this. Just do this. And that's the thing. These narcissistic systems, these authoritarian systems always blame the victims. It's always on the people. It's not on the leaders. It's not on the rules. It's not on the culture. It's on the people to try to change their perception. And the thing around this is there is a half-truth to you don't have to let other people affect you. But if that's taken as absolute truth, then no one will be held accountable for anything they've done. People would just say to victims, oh, just change your attitude or, oh, just do this. If he applied that to everything, people would not be held accountable for their actions. Another thing is that this statement comes from a place of privilege of, oh, it's just all in your attitude because this does not consider how marginalized identities experience discrimination on a daily basis. And I just want to state that before I move on. In the next section, it says, investigation findings, messages of blame or shame. And the report says that some investigation participants identified hearing the following themes in institutional venues, such as the chapel, classrooms, and counseling sessions. And it states that blaming a woman for triggering sexual abuse or sexual assault with her dress and labeling victims as damaged goods. For some investigation participants, hearing these hurtful messages of blame or shame caused them not to seek help at BJU. A section of the report states that venues in which BJU officials reportedly shifted blame for a man's lustful disposition to a woman based on her dress surfaced in a variety of arenas, including sermons, classroom teachings, dormitory meetings, orientations, and school-related trips. The report states that BJU administrators deny charges that the university places blame upon a woman for a man's lust towards her. However, from the time of the university's founding, focus upon a woman's dress has been a point of significant concern. In addition, the university's dress code stated objective is to teach students who consider the impact of their choices on others, thus living out Jesus' instruction about loving others as ourselves. These reported messages have communicated to some individuals, particularly to female victims of sexual abuse, an underlying sense of responsibility for the man's lust, which may invoke shame and blame for the occurrence of sexual offenses. Another section of the report states, a current faculty member noted that BJU's focus on a woman's responsibility may create an environment that would be an environment of blaming the victim where you might say the person was asking for it. The BJU employee reported hearing messages from the chapel pulpit that women are responsible for men's lustful thoughts as a result of how they dress 
and does not believe that BJU colleagues have intended to be hurtful. However, these messages, fears the faculty member, point to an underlying culture of sexism and a pervasive and perhaps unconscious devaluation of women by viewing them as bodies to be used solely for male purposes. And the report states others have similarly noted a correlation between BJU views on dress and the potential for re-victimization. Another section is on blaming or shaming as damaged goods. And the report states that the investigation participants who heard this message reported hearing messages that viewed all sexual sin as equal. As one individual noted, and I quote, most in the fundy world view all sexual sin as being equally bad. The report states a lack of distinction between sexual abuse and consensual sexual sin has caused some victims of sexual offenses to feel impure and shamed even though they did not choose the sexual act perpetrated upon them. The report states a student who attended BJU in the 1960s and was a victim of sexual abuse observed, they did not mention sexual abuse. Sexual sin, yes. I remember they could have discussions about reasons to divorce. They said there were two reasons, adultery and fornication. Fornication was sex before marriage. In my thinking, because of the abuse, I had sex before marriage, and my husband had reason to divorce me. Sexual abuse was sexual sin. In my thinking, it had to be because there was no distinction that was made between sexual sin and sexual abuse, and sexual sin was the epitome of sin. She reported that these messages at BJU were everywhere, and consequently, she felt dirty and unworthy. And the report states, other individuals noted that messages about purity contributed to the damaged goods label. As one sexual abuse victim who attended BJU in the 2000s explained, virginity was the ultimate ideal. It was praised. It was talked about. And if you had lost it, then you would never be good enough. It was encouraged to the guys that you only marry a girl that is a virgin. And Chapel talked about purity constantly. She explained that she agreed with the university's position on saving sex for a marriage relationship, but because she had been sexually abused, she said she felt she was different from her classmates. Another section of the report states, and I quote, Dr. Fremont taught that people from good environments should only marry other individuals from good environments. Though his counseling text suggests that a sexual abuse victim can be married, his classroom teaching impacted some victims of sexual abuse, in particular because some have understood his teachings about marriage to mean that individuals should not marry victims of sexual abuse. As one victim of sexual abuse noted, Dr. Fremont, and I quote, taught that people who suffered these things as children would be more likely to commit them as adults, and so it was better not to marry such a person. She offered an example of a boy who was abused by a male and noted, and I quote, many people would assume that he was also going to be homosexual and explained that, and I quote, Walter Fremont's teachings contributed to this outlook, the idea that whatever's done to you as a young person became a part of your inclinations to do to others. Another victim also mentioned that Dr. Fremont, and I quote, was very brutal on guys who had more effeminate behaviors, as well as abuse survivors and divorced parents' kids. 
As a victim of sexual abuse, she lamented how difficult Dr. Freeman's class had been for her and said, and I quote, I didn't have a chance in this man's class. Consequently, she said she learned not to speak up in class. The report states another victim of sexual abuse who attended BJU in the late 1980s and early 1990s reported hearing the message that a person should not marry someone who has been sexually abused because it could bring, and I quote, a stain on a future marriage and a stain on the possibility of future ministry for the husband. She explained how these teachings impacted her, and I quote, I also learned how useless and shameful I was because of the things that had happened to me in my past. Dr. Fremont taught about the impurity that was mine forever because of things that happened to me that I had not chosen. No good man should marry a girl like me who isn't pure, who had been through sexual abuse, especially if he had aspirations of being in the ministry. My parents had expectations that I should marry only a pastor or missionary. Yet the school taught that I wasn't worthy of that. I was used and couldn't be fixed. In the next section, this is an analysis of the messages of blame and shame. The report states that victims of sexual abuse should never be blamed or shamed for the abuse they suffered. Nothing ever justifies the sin and crime of sexual abuse. And BJU officials have affirmed this truth. Victims, nonetheless, reported hearing messages at the university that had the effect of blaming and stigmatizing victims. Blaming or stigmatizing victims, even subtly or unintentionally, for abuse inflicts a fresh wound and the damage is incalculable. Another part of the report says several victims and participants in the investigation nonetheless described that as they experienced the university's communications about BJU's dress code, they felt blame and responsibility for the man's lust. As one witness noted, and I quote, The problem with a woman wearing revealing clothing in this view is that she causes men to lust and maybe even to make sexual advances on her. Another section of the Grace Report states, Regardless of the university's intention, many women reported hearing this harmful message from multiple sources within the BJU community. And the report states how communities speak about women and women's bodies also matters because sexual abuse or assault causes victims to feel vulnerable. Victims desperately seek something stable to help them to make sense of the trauma they have experienced. Victims desperately search for a compassionate anchor who will affirm that they are not at fault. Victims need someone to help them combat their abuser's message, which states, You deserve what you got. You are worthless. You are disposable. Shifting blame to victims, even unintentional, further harms them by reinforcing the perpetrator's lies. God calls anyone responding to abuse victims to fight these dark lives with the light of truth. Assault is never a victim's fault. In section two, this is the investigation findings of counseling sessions and the issue of blame. And the report states, Though some individuals reported positive experiences with BJU counselors, the majority of participants expressed concern about BJU's counseling related to issues of sexual abuse that led to feelings of re-victimization. The following are some of the concerns victims raised. One survey taker said, just summarizing what the counselor or counseling did, it took your greatest fears about what your perpetrator did and your feelings related to it, and it confirms all of those greatest fears, and it is horrifying. I feel like I was raped by her in a way. 
I would not say that what I struggle with most in counseling now is not the actual details of the abuse, but the ramifications of the counseling I had from my counselor and what they, BJU, think of the abuse. Another survey taker states, the sexual assault was bad and horrifying, but I got counseling elsewhere for that. Another person said, I know there are people who went to school there that are okay and have healthy lives, but I don't think anyone that went through their counseling for anything significant are okay and fine or have healthy lives. Another person said, I had nightmares for years. What happened to me was terrible. What the people at Bob Jones did to me was worse. I asked for counseling. It was one of the worst mistakes I made. Another person said, I do not think that is the environment I would want to receive counseling with. Another person states, I had very frequent interactions with student and faculty patients who had been sexually assaulted or abused because in my profession, I had permission to ask nosy questions about sexual behavior. I was appalled at the number of women I was coming across who had suffered from these crimes and I had very few resources to offer them. I initially recommended they get counseling at this school, but I learned quickly that was a mistake. In another section, it says BJU's influential counselors, and the report states that during the course of the investigation, four names repeatedly surfaced as having a particularly significant and far-reaching influence upon the philosophy and practice of counseling at Bob Jones University. The first person is Dr. Walter Fremont. The second person is Dr. Bob Wood. The third person is Dr. Jim Berg. And the fourth person is Dr. Gregory Mazak. The report states their teaching, preaching, writing, and or counseling has undoubtedly reached thousands of counselees, counselors, students, pastors, teachers, missionaries, and innumerable others, not only at BJU, but in other schools, churches, mission fields, retreats, and or camps across the globe who have been in contact with their work. Many in the BJU community look to these counselors as experts in counseling abuse victims. Not only have these counselors impacted the culture of BJU's counseling practices, but their counseling approaches have impacted sexual abuse victims who attended BJU. The next section is General Counseling Principles, and the Grace Report states, BJU teaches that according to biblical principles, man is a sinful being. In a counseling book published by BJU Press, Dr. Fremont explained, The book states, Man was created perfect and was conformed to God's will in the Garden of Eden. Adam was in a perfect relationship with God. His environment was perfect and his relationship with his wife was perfect. There was no problem with his feelings about himself. When Adam and Eve failed the test that God allowed and chose to rebel against God, they became hostile to God, other self, and the environment. Ever since that original sin, mankind has had problems that, if not derived from medical causes, which include chemical causes or organic causes such as brain tumors, are a result of wrong relationships to God and one's neighbor. People experience maladjustment in this way because they deliberately sin against a holy God and reap the resulting guilt or fear. The report states, counselors at BJU generally appear to place a high degree of emphasis upon determining the root of cause problems. Determining a root cause is an important focus because as BJU 
publications affirm their counseling is focused upon spiritual transformation that makes a person more Christ-like. In this view, the personal problems of man may be influenced by a high, variable number of factors, some of which include one's background, environment, genetics, heredity, and sin. Broadly speaking, many who teach counseling and psychology at BJU appear to hold the view that these problems generally fall into three categories, physical, spiritual, or a combination of both. Physical maladies generally require medical treatment. The report states, however, this view holds that emotional and behavioral problems are primarily related to spiritual weakness that are best addressed by the application of biblical principles. A number of participants in the investigation reported hearing teachings at BTU such as, and I quote, man's mental and behavioral problems are spiritual and must be solved spiritually. Problems having both physical and spiritual roots require both physical and spiritual solutions. According to counseling principles espoused by BJU's counselors, the occurrence of sexual abuse or sexual assault brings, and I quote, a trial, end quote, upon a victim, to which the victim may choose to respond righteously or sinfully. A righteous response to a trial is one that is most like Christ. An unrighteous response requires a victim to confess sin and conform his or her, and I quote, mindset and choices to accurately mirror his position and identity in Christ, end quote. The report states, in addition, BJU's teachings appear to indicate that how individuals choose to respond to life's problems is a product of the heart. As Dr. Berg explains in his Change into His Image, and I quote, A mere relief of the symptoms of despair, anger, fear, and so forth does not necessarily mean the real problem has been solved. Jesus said it is this way in Mark seven twenty one through 23 For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, which is known as shameless sensuality, and evil eye, envy, blasphemy, pride, arrogance, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. The Apostle James tells us the same thing in James 4.1, from whence comes wars and fightings among you, which it says is war visible problems. Come they not hence, even of your lusts, which is the inward desires of the heart, that war in your members? Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, man has attempted to blame someone or something for this trouble. Adam attempted to shift responsibility to Eve, and Eve pointed the accusing finger at the serpent. God's word is clear, however, that our real problems are not the result of pressures from someone or something outside ourselves. We do not sin because of financial, social, medical, or circumstantial pressures. We sin because each of us has a sinful heart. And this is the end of the quote. And the report says other publications and counseling materials similarly discuss the significance of understandings of persons, and I quote, heart condition, end quote, in order to identify the root causes of problems. As Dr. Berg wrote, quoting Bob Wood, our greatest problems are never around us. They are in us, end quote. And the report states that one specific illustration of this concept that Dr. Berg discussed is the illustration of the tea bag. Dr. Berg explained, the, and I quote, the pressures around us, 
which in parentheses is the unfavorable circumstances, the temptations, and the commands of God to love him and our neighbor. And it states, merely draw out our heart what is already in it. We cannot blame hot water for the taste in the cup. Dr. Berg explained that he has used this illustration in some counseling scenarios, and when teaching all of the, his freshman orientation classes, he further noted that he uses it when he is talking about the responses to trials. And the quote is that God uses our circumstances to draw out what is in our heart. End quote. Another section is counseling methodologies. The report states BJU counselors have used different counseling methodologies to apply these counseling principles, and these applications appear to be dependent upon the counselor's workable time frame when balanced with other administrative responsibilities. Another part of the report states Dr. Berg discussed his counseling training videos and identified some of the important questions he asked when counseling victims of sexual abuse. In the training video, Dr. Berg discusses the problem situation, which is what happened, when, where, with whom. After discussing the nature and extent of the abuse, he teaches that it is important to discuss the after effects of the abuse, and he asks questions about the counselee's emotions. How did you feel? What emotions did you experience? And then he asks about their behavior. What did you say? What did you do? And thinking, what do you think? Dr. Berg tells future counselors, and I quote, after you've worked with this a little bit, write out your questions ahead of time and don't be afraid of making mistakes. You are not going to hurt anybody. You are not going to permanently damage their psyche or anything like that. Just get at it. Be a caring, concerned person who's trying to help and write out your questions and compassionately begin asking these things. The report states, according to Dr. Jim Burke, and I quote, Ultimately, what we are trying to get at here is the heart and what desires and what control is going on in the heart because this is where the change has got to take place. He further explains that it is important to identify what hard issues may exist that may need to be confessed and forsaken so that the counselee can put off the old man and have a renewed mind and respond in a godly manner, experience emotional stability, and live a life pleasing to God. In some cases, BJU counseling methodologies have included attempting to aid a victim in determining whether there was any part of the sexual abuse that raises any elements of legitimate guilt that a victim may need to confess. Dr. Berg explained in his counseling video that when he asks questions in a session, his intention is to aid a victim in determining whether there was any part of what happened that is legitimate guilt that needs to be confessed. He also stated in his interview with Grace that when he asked counselees these questions, he never intended to impart the idea that your sin here caused this. In his book, Becoming an Effective Christian Counselor, A Practical Guide for Helping People, Dr. Fremont discusses counseling victims of incest and explains that the first objective is to ensure that blame is appropriately assigned to the older person who took advantage of the younger innocent person. However, Dr. Fremont states, if the victim has deceived either parent or both parents, he needs to confess and repent of his own sin. As an example, Dr. Fremont describes a case of a teenage girl who takes a bath only when her mother is away from home and leaves the bathroom door unlocked, inviting the father's corruptness. Dr. Wood similarly discussed the importance of a victim's repentance if there is any wrongdoing. In his counseling training video, 
and I quote, scriptural principles for counseling the abused, he teaches that, and I quote, if abuse victims have sinned, and some of them have not, and some of them have, but you handle a guilty conscience the same way. By confessing to God you are sorry for your failure and by not doing that same thing again and by asking forgiveness. When asked what he thinks the spiritual impact is upon victims of sexual abuse, Dr. Wood told Grace, and I quote, I think that people internally are angry at God for allowing this to happen. So you have to get beyond that. And it is a very difficult thing to get beyond because I can't tell you why something like this happened. I can tell you it did happen but I can't tell you why it happened or why the Lord allowed it to happen. I assume that there is some reason that this has happened and that you would have to work it out within your own mind about why. And it is interesting that in many cases that it really is the root problem. The girl may have caused it to start and that is the root problem with her and she has to handle that somehow or another, end quote. Grace asked Dr. Wood if he could offer any examples of when a girl might have caused abuse to start. And he stated, and I quote, I mean, if she's aggressive with a man, then she may have caused it. It is pretty easy for things like that to get started between individuals. I think that generally a girl will feel guilty about it. She'll feel that she shouldn't have had anything to do with it, but she knows down in her heart that she did have something to do with it, end quote. Dr. Wood further explained how the victim's provocation is sin just as the perpetrator's assault is sin. Both the victim and the perpetrator need cleansing from their sins, according to Dr. Wood. In the next section, it is on blame felt in counseling sessions. The Grace Report states that a victim of sexual assault stated that she disclosed to Dr. Berg in the 1990s that a BJU student had sexually assaulted her off campus. At the suggestion of a family friend, the victim met with Dr. Berg about the sexual assault on one occasion. The victim stated that when she met with Dr. Berg, she felt like she was on trial and Berg was the judge. The victim also stated that Dr. Berg asked her numerous questions about her spiritual life and her church attendance. In another section of the Greg's report, it states, Another victim explained that she had been in counseling with Dr. Berg and left the counseling session feeling blamed. She stated that before she came to BJU in the 2000s, she had been sexually assaulted at work. She disclosed her abuse to her dorm counselor, who suggested that they meet with Dr. Berg. In the first counseling session, the victim remembers that Dr. Berg had asked her a series of rapid-fire questions such as, Were you drinking? Were you smoking marijuana? Were you morally impure? Were you sleeping with anyone? The victim said that she told Dr. Berg that she was 18 and at work during the incident and that before the assault, she had only once held hands with a boy on a school bus. The victim reported that Dr. Berg said, we needed to figure out what my sin was. He asked if I was sinning. The victim reported that Dr. Berg said, there is a sin that happens behind every other sin. Dr. Berg acknowledged that he did not have any official counseling records other than some handwritten notes about the session. He said that he could not recall whether he asked these questions or not. He explained, Sin behind every sin is not a concept I do. Dr. Berg explained that the purpose of these types of questions is to distinguish between the guilt or shame that God intends when a person sins versus shame or guilt that is not from God. <clears throat> 
but which may come from another source. The victim, however, reported that she left the meeting feeling devastated and hopeless. The Grace Report also states that a victim of abuse reported that she had been physically and sexually abused <clears throat> as a minor and reported her abuse to BJU officials in the 2000s. She stated that she disclosed the abuse to her counselors and to a professor. In response to her disclosure, the victim remembers when asking her what she did to bring this on. She also noted for a couple of sessions in counseling, the counselor had me think through if there was something I had done, and then the next week I would have homework dealing with that. In the next section, it talks about the issue of pleasure, and the Grace Report states, Several individuals raised a complaint that BJU counselors had encouraged abuse victims to confess and repent of any pleasure experienced during the sexual abuse. One such sexual abuse victim disclosed that she decided not to seek help from anyone at BJU after hearing this teaching. She related her belief that Dr. Fremont's views have permeated the faculty and staff, and consequently, she said she buried her abuse until she was in her 40s. Another individual also explained hearing this message in a counseling session with a BJU counselor. She stated that she had been the victim of childhood sexual abuse before coming to BJU in the late 2000s. When she came to BJU, she sought counseling at BJU. The former student related that the issue of pleasure came up when discussing her abuse with a counselor. She said that her counselor said, and I quote, that if I had ever experienced pleasure, that was sin that I need to repent of. End quote. The Grace Report states, the victim stated that these comments left her very hurt and confused. In an interview with Grace, the counselor denied asking the counselee about pleasure or telling her to repent of it. She stated, I have never said that to my class and I haven't counseled that way. The Grace Report states, The victim stated that after two years of counseling, she discontinued seeing the BJU counselor and shortly thereafter met with a BJU graduate and an experienced counselor in the Greenville area. This counselor told Grace that she had also met with a few other counselees in the Greenville area who have reportedly received the same message from the victim's former BJU counselor and explained that these counselees did not know each other and had randomly given the same accounts of the BJU counselor's views on pleasure to her at different times in the last decade. She shared with Grace that the emotional and spiritual impact of this statement upon her counselees had crushed them because they felt like they had been victimized again by that statement. The Grace Report states that Dr. Berg also discusses in his counselor training videos the issue of a victim who may feel pleasure during the abuse, and he acknowledged that the area of pleasure can be a confusing topic for sexual abuse victims. Dr. Berg stated that in a counseling training video, all of these interlocking or mixed together opposite feelings of pleasure yet perversion have to be sorted out. On the counseling training video, Dr. Burke further explains that when he is meeting with a counseling for the first time, he asks numerous questions that are related to the nature and effects of the abuse. Dr. Burke explains some of the questions he uses in the first counseling session, saying, and I pose, Was there ever any? Have you wondered why any of this was pleasurable to you, and yet it was somebody that was a family member, and have you ever felt like you were perverted? 
And I will ask them some of those questions to get their thinking out. And I will pose some of those confusing questions. Have you ever thought this? And they will say, no, there was no part of it that was pleasurable to me. Well, that's good then. But I'm asking them some of these questions that we discussed when we talked about confusion. And I want to know how their thinking has been confused. Are they blame shifting in any way? Do they feel guilty for anything? The training video does not appear to indicate the view that a counselee should repent of pleasure. Dr. Berg broadly discusses in this video session and in other video sessions a need for any counselee to repent and forsake any sins that are at the heart of the counselee's problems. In this next section, we go over the general counseling principles and analysis of them. The Grace Report states... The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. This adage actively captures a central tenet of discipleship among BJU counselors. Many struggles in people's everyday Christian walk are rooted in sinful attitudes of the heart that can be remedied by repentance and adjustments in thinking. The application of this discipleship tenet to sexual abuse counseling is fraught with risk for the abuse victim. Misapplication can result in victims being grossly ill-served. Abuse victims will be underserved to the degree the impact of sexual abuse is misconstrued to be an issue of sinful heart attitudes that requires detection and repentance rather than recognized as evidence of possible psychological trauma requiring skilled assessment. In such a case, the counseling needs of the abuse victims will likely be underestimated. Biblical knowledge rather than trauma expertise will be the primary criteria for counselor selection. Abuse victims will be ill-served to the degree that the misapplication of the heart problem tenant adds to their guilt, shame, and self-blame. This is likely if common psychological responses to sexual victimization such as sorrow, grief, and fear are mislabeled as deliberate sinful choices rather than as pre-wired symptoms of soul injury. Viewing the psychological aftermath of abuse as primarily a spiritual problem also places the burden on victims to solve their problems through their own spiritual effort. And the Grace Report states that, despite the recognition that medical problems can affect behavior and emotions, there seems to be little appreciation among BJU counselors of the substantial scientific evidence that post-traumatic stress disorder and other trauma-related anxiety and effect conditions are likely to have neurobiological causes. As a result, BJU counselors may not be referring abuse victims for appropriate medical evaluation. The next section I'll be covering is Chapter 4, Trauma and Vulnerability. In this part of this chapter, I am referring to now this section on trauma symptoms and sin. And the Grace Report states that university counselors deny blaming victims for their symptoms by noting that abuse effects are the result of a fallen world. Dr. Berg noted that emotional effects from sexual trauma such as nightmares, flashbacks, and some other effects of abuse are normal, and stated I would say that part of living in a sinful world, living with a sinful heart that does not always process things right, I would not lay any blame for that. This is another thing that makes life hard, but there is nothing sinful in that response. If you were suffering from cancer, maybe 
you've had inoperable colon cancer or stomach cancer and you wake up in pain. You can do nothing about it. You didn't cause it. It's part of living in a fallen world. Dr. Mazak explained, all problems are spiritual. He then stated, I think it all goes back to presuppositions. If we are all struggling with problems, then all problems are spiritual. When I say all problems are spiritual, I am quoting PhD psychologist and Welch from Westminster Theological Seminary. There is no problem that does not have a spiritual aspect. When asked if he believes a depressed person is sinning if the depressed person is not thinking godly thoughts, to response, Dr. Mazak responded, that is a hard question. He explained that he believes that original sin taints all aspects of human existence. Dr. Mazak also acknowledged the challenges of communicating the implications of this view to students. He stated, now, the problem with saying that is, it sounds like you're saying you have a problem because you sinned. That is not what that means. Dr. Mazak acknowledged the difficulty of communicating this distinction. And the grave support states, in the past, when students raised complaints about his views, Dr. Mazak said he listens to them, acknowledges that they feel attacked, and then states, you are just like me in that we are going through progressive sanctification, and we are all struggling every day. Every one of us is struggling, but we are struggling with different things. Some struggle with depression, some anxiety, some fear, some worry. In an interview, Dr. Mazak was asked how he responds to victims who raise a complaint that he identifies problems associated with abuse as sin. He responded, I honestly believe that Jesus Christ is great enough to allow me to respond to anything I face. And ultimately, the answer is getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ more. And the next section is about trauma symptoms and the will. And the Grace Report states, Though Dr. Berg and Dr. Mazak indicated that they do not view some trauma effects such as nightmares or PTSD as sins per se, BJU counselors do believe that victims have a responsibility for their thought patterns. As Dr. Berg stated in his counseling training videos, my will has to be involved in rebellion and in anger. And all these things for my soul to be touched by what happens to my body. In applying this idea to the issues of nightmares, Dr. Berg noted, the stronger the emotion, the stronger the memory, the more likely it is going to be a part of a nightmare. But the thing that keeps it alive is the emotion now that you have that it keeps it going. The fear now, the hatred now, the anger now keeps it alive. You deal with those emotions, the nightmares disappear too. For decades, both Dr. Wood and Dr. Fremont taught other counselors to use what they termed the Trinity of Man or Triune Man models to explain the concepts of body, spiritual, and soul to sexual abuse victims. These models related that a soul injury is essentially under the direct control of the victim. Succinctly stated, unless the conscious mind decides otherwise, what happens in the body stays in the body. Dr. Woods summarized his concept in the conclusion to his counselor training video. Now, and he states, now in closing, I want you to grasp this. The body is the throwaway part, the least important part. Somebody has offended the body, Satan has taken that. Cause the imagination great problems. Given the reason a battle caused the memory to be bad, has hurt the conscience and robbed the people of an ability to love. 
How do you get over that? Let's start here and work out. Are you willing to get over it? Are you willing to accept the fact this happened and there is nothing you can do about what happened in the past? Are you willing to believe that it was the least important part of you that was offended? Are you willing to believe that God forgives and forgets and can give you the right thoughts? Are you willing to accept the truth of the scripture? Are you willing to be successful for the Lord in life? What will you do with your will? I've tried for years as a counselor to get people to do things they didn't want to do. The older I get, the more I recognize we have got to work with the will of people. They have to be willing because God gave man a free will and allows them to exercise that will. In another aspect of this chapter, this is an analysis of the psychological effects. The Gray Support states that the epitome of victim blaming is to tell rape victims that their severe symptoms of PTSD are their own fault. Their debilitating fear, their wildly unpredictable flashbacks, and their frequent disassociative blackouts and their terrifying nightmares would all disappear if only they would stop dwelling on the past, forgive and forget, memorize more scripture, and be a better Christian. The Grace Report says, Dr. Burke and Dr. Mazak acknowledge that PTSD is a normal response to traumatic events. The symptoms of PTSD, such as flashbacks and nightmares, are also normal and thus not inherently sinful. However, symptoms like flashbacks and nightmares are, in this view, spiritual problems. The approach taken by Dr. Mazak and Dr. Berg can only be heard by an abuse victim as saying that suffering from PTSD is sinful. The stronger the symptoms and the longer they linger, the more evidence that the abuse victim is failing their trial or not making enough spiritual effort to know Jesus. The nuances and distinctions that Dr. Berg and Dr. Mazak make in regard to the sinfulness of PTSD, depression, and other effects for many abuse victims are distinctions without meaning. The investigation suggests that some abuse victims hear only condemnation. For abuse victims, being blamed for the psychological aftereffects of their abuse is the final result. BJU may teach that the victim has limited accountability for the immediate psychological response to the assault, but abuse victims learn that the grace period is short-lived. The mature Christian is expected to shed the psychological vestiges of abuse and quickly get back in step. In cases of deep wounds to the soul, the time expires and the abuse victim remains helpless to do either. Heaping more blame and shame on the abuse survivor because he or she is suffering is both hurtful and counterproductive. The Grace Report states the counselor and the psychology professor both have roles to play in emphasizing God's tender mercies for the abuse victim rather than suggesting that God is displeased with the abuse victim for their response to their trial. In another section, it is about investigative findings unforgiveness. The Grace Report states investigation participants reported hearing many messages on forgiveness from many different venues during their time at BJU. Victims also reported that these messages often pressured abuse victims to forgive quickly to avoid bitterness and or to confront their abuser. For many, this pressure blamed them for not forgiving their perpetrators, minimized their sorrow, ignored their cries for justice, and intensified their trauma symptoms. The Grace Report states a number of individuals reported that victims felt pressure to prematurely to forgive and forget. Another part of the Grace Report, which is on sorrow and lament, 
the and it states the pressure some victims feel to forgive quickly has caused them to conclude that BJU authorities do not appreciate a victim's need to grieve their losses and feel deep sorrow for the abuse they suffered. In addition, participants expressed concern that victims who are grieving have been labeled as bitter. One victim of childhood sexual abuse explained that BJU officials pressured victims by focusing on their response to the abuse, but not allowing you to grieve the loss of the pain. Another victim who sought counseling at BJU similarly observed, and they said, I was told to forgive, but I was never truly allowed to feel angry or to allow myself to reflect on the hurt that I should feel. It was as if the perpetrator had called me a mean name or lied to me. There seemed to be very little recognition of the fact that child sex abuse leads feelings of shame and confusion. These types of feelings were never addressed. And another section is cries for justice, and the report states the premature focus upon a victim's responsibility to forgive has, for many, minimized any messages that clearly condemn the abuser or that cry for a victim's justice. As a current employee noted, and I quote, over the years I have heard countless chapel sermons where we were told we need to forgive those who wrong us. Of course, the Bible teaches that as an overarching principle, but where is the cry for evil men to stop abusing men and children? I've heard sermons about homosexuality and purity overall, but I don't really remember hearing anything specific about sexual abuse. What about telling abuse survivors how to deal with their own hurts and horror? No, just the same old forgive and forget and don't tell on your perpetrator and don't get bitter, end quote. Now, in another section of the report... It is the investigation findings that is focused on counseling ethics. So the title of this section is called Conflicts of Interest, Discipline and Counseling. And the report says that discipline has been a hallmark of BJU's existence from its establishment. And BJU officials highlight discipline as one of the school's greatest assets. In addition to discipline, BJU has provided some form of official counseling services for students since the 1970s. And desires to serve victims of sexual abuse. Certainly, both are important values. The university's current student life structure, however, invites role conflicts between discipline and counseling because it oversees both functions. Another part of this section states, and I quote, BJU Student Life Department also oversees the university's counseling services. The Dean of Students supervises the Dean of Women, the Dean of Men, the women's counselor, and the assistant dean of mentoring and counseling. As dean of students from 1981 to 2010, Dr. Berg stated that he counseled 200 to 300 victims of sexual abuse. Dr. Berg is no longer the dean of students, and the current dean of students does not counsel victims of sexual abuse, in part because BJU created the women's counselor position in 2012 to aid with the counseling load. Nonetheless, the potential for conflicts of interest in the counseling relationship remain a concern because of the university's organizational structure. The women's counselor oversees the female resident counselor and also reports to the dean of women. The assistant dean of mentoring and counseling oversees the male resident counselors and also reports to the dean of men. Both the dean of women and dean of men report directly to the dean of students. Moreover, the women's counselor's office has been located in the administration building in very close proximity to the dean of students' office. And the report says, in discussing the combined roles of counseling and discipline with Dr. Jones III, 
He said that he does not believe that the combined roles of counselor and disciplinarian are problematic. In another section of the Grace Report, it states, In a case reported to Grace, a childhood victim of physical and sexual abuse stated that she came to BJU as a student in the 2000s. Because her parents had forbidden her to seek counseling after she left home, she explained, The very first appointment I had with a counselor, I stress how absolutely important confidentiality is because in fundamentalism, everyone knows everyone. Despite her expressions of fear, after the first session, less than a week later, I got a call from the pastor's wife, and this is the victim's former church, the BJU counselor called to confirm my story. That is a big thing with them. I feel like I spent half the time trying to prove to them this happened. The victim reported that her pastor's wife was very upset that I was in counseling. And it says because discussing abuse was ruining my parents' ministry and I need to be quiet. And the report states in an interview with the BJU counselor about the reported breach of confidentiality with the pastor's wife, the counselor said she might have spoken to the pastor's wife about the victim, stating, I know that I didn't have conversations with her and share with her that the victim was saying to me. I know I didn't do that. I may have called her and asked her to pray. I don't know. I can't remember. All right. And then in another section of the grave support, we're in the part two, the investigation findings in the zone of safety. The report states several victims described a dynamic at BJU where they felt constantly evaluated and never felt safe to ask spiritual questions, even in their own dorm rooms or among their friends. Instead of experiencing the safety they needed for disclosing their abuse, they described how afraid they were of being reported for a code of conduct violation or being evaluated in the resident hall evaluations. In some cases, this fear led to a decision not to seek help at BJU. And in the next section, it explains the residence hall evaluations, and the report states that BJU has employed a system of resident hall evaluations for students who evaluate each other. Some investigation participants identify these resident hall evaluations as negatively impacting their disclosure experience. The university requires that students who live in the residence halls undergo residence hall evaluations each academic year. Though these evaluations have changed through the years, they have generally covered various issues, including spiritual life, personal consistency, response to authority, effectiveness in dealing with others, effectiveness in personal performance of duty, personal efficiency, emotional control, social life, and appearance. End quote. Something I want to personally add in here. When I was there, we had what was called the Christian Evaluation Form, which it sounds like what this is talking about. And it was not required, but there was so much social pressure to do it. And I do not know if they still do this or not, but it's just another level of control. Another part of the grave support states the informant type of atmosphere may make victims of sexual abuse particularly fearful of disclosing abuse at BJU. As a former student noted, and this former student states, expulsion was a constant and real fear. Students disappeared all the time, expelled and vanished from campus without even any goodbyes. I can't really describe it fully. It was like a low cloud always being there overhead, like a grip on everything you did or said. It was a real fear with real consequences. It extended to things as simply as cleaning your room and the shoes you wore, but it wasn't just about physical things. It was about attitude, which is where the real meat of the trouble was, in my opinion. A wrong attitude could get you expelled or at least interrogated. 
I saw it happen. Grumpiness, sarcasm, skepticism, questioning, or even quiet sadness could be seen as decent and could lead to counseling or even expulsion if they continued. My point is this, in an environment where depression, sadness, or questioning of BJU in any way could lead to expulsion, how on earth would someone really feel safe reporting sexual assaults? That is my point, end quote. Another part of the report talks about the sanctions at Bob Jones, and the report says, Some individuals explained that some of the university sanctions, including discipline, probation, and spiritual-slash-character probation, have had a chilling effect upon the disclosure of sexual abuse and upon the disclosure of symptoms or effects associated with sexual abuse. For example, one victim of sexual abuse explained, and I quote, let's say a student was drinking over the summer and raped by a boyfriend or was making out with a boyfriend and then he ultimately raped her. A student would be way too afraid of revealing those situations because she would get kicked out of school for the drink slash immorality, even if the rape component wasn't her fault, end quote. Some sexual abuse victims reported fear of expulsion for attempting suicide or struggling with an eating disorder. Dr. Berg denied that a student would be expelled for an eating disorder or for attempting suicide, but stated that they had asked students to withdraw for medical reasons on some occasions in the past. And another part of the Grace Report states, in addition, several administrators explained that when students confess to breaking a student life policy, the disclosure does not result in disciplinary action if the disclosure is made in order to clear their conscience before God and the matter is not publicly known by others. However, if students are either caught in an offense or if they did not make a confession out of a true heart conviction, the confession of the offense is insufficient to remove the punishment. Dr. Berg explained that this concept is based upon scripture and stated if somebody confessed that we would rejoice in that, that they are wanting to come clean with God. Despite these university policies in a reported case, a student who disclosed sexual abuse in the mid-2000s still received sanctions when the circumstances violated the university's code of conduct. In another section of the report, it states that Dr. Jones III stated, and I quote, that nobody who is a genuine victim of rape would ever be expelled, end quote. Likewise, the university policy state, and I quote, BJU forbids any form of discipline or retaliation for reporting incidents of abuse or neglect, end quote. And the report states, regrettably, in fact, some students who reported sexual abuse or effects associated therewith did receive discipline. As an outlined in the investigative findings, number 777 is a tragic example of someone who needed compassion and healing, but instead received discipline. Her pastor had groomed her from the age of 15. She was completely under the spell of his manipulation and abuse. A 15-year-old is completely vulnerable to such a powerful spiritual authority in her life. He taught her from the Bible that their relationship was acceptable. His manipulation and deceit turned all conceptions of right and wrong on their head. This pastor systematically abused her over years. Instead of leading her to spiritual growth in a vile betrayal, he violated her and used her like a worthless object. In another section, the reports talk about fear being judged or blamed, and the report states, Several investigation participants identified residence hall evaluations as reasons why they did not disclose their abuse or receive counsel while at the university. 
Dr. Berg also admitted that his dual role as counselor and disciplinarian probably kept students from disclosing their abuse to him. And the report says God puts a high premium on compassion, especially for those who have experienced trauma. Compassion is a fundamental call of love to our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan sets a high bar responsibility for a compassionate response to those who have suffered severe trauma. Counselors must remove fear and create a space where the love of God in the gospel cast out any fear disclosing difficult circumstances. The fear of punishment created by the role of disciplinarian is in direct conflict with this objective. The report says these institutional dynamics have contributed to the concern by many that the university is not a safe place for abuse victims to disclose their abuse. Consequently, victims have not sought help when they needed it. Vulnerable victims need to have confidence that the entire BJU campus community will respond to their disclosure with compassion. Otherwise, many more victims will feel harmed, will not seek help, and will continue to suffer in silence. And in another section of the Grace Support, it talks about the reporting of sexual offenses. And part of this section states, and I quote, several different BJU authorities, including President Stephen Jones, appear to have relied heavily upon Dr. Berg's knowledge and expertise in the handling the majority of BJU's child sexual abuse disclosures between 1981 and 2010. A former top cabinet officer explained, and I quote, Now, it was through Dr. Berg that I became aware that in certain cases, because of age and family and so forth, those cases need to be reported to the authorities. To the best of my knowledge, he did that if that was warranted. And the report says, Dr. Berg described how he became familiar with any updates in handling abuse disclosures, saying, Whatever we did find out about this whole area, I had to go find. I got an inkling somewhere through a circular something I read or a conference I went to, that there is something we need to be doing that we are not doing. Every advance we have made on that has come that way. It was not where it ought to be, even when I left the Dean of Students. Dr. Berg said he became aware of mandatory reporting laws in 1992 when he attended Dan Allender's Wounded Heart Conference. Dr. Berg explained, and I quote, We were fairly isolated from educational, well, I never had any interaction with other student life in other colleges. I didn't know what existed or what they had to offer. We were not in the public education, so we were not getting flyers from the board saying that we need to put these policies in and carry out these state and federal laws. I received none of that. This was 1970 to 1980 when I came in. I can tell you as soon as we found out about something, it went into policy and it went into effect, but it was very, very slow in coming. I think mainly because our interaction with the outside in these areas was very small. Before, I didn't even know I could have found information about that in the library, but I didn't know to ask about that. In another section, it says Dr. Berg also reported his initial understanding that his mandatory reporting responsibilities did not extend to abuse or neglect that happened away from BJU's campus. He reflected, and I quote, I was under the impression that my reporting responsibility was to report sexual abuse that was going on under our roof with our workers, end quote. And the report says Dr. Berg also said he later realized that the location of the offense has no bearing upon a mandatory obligation to report. And the report says when counseling adult victims, Dr. Berg acknowledged that there were some occasions where he did not ask appropriate follow-up questions about an alleged perpetrator's access to other children. 
In another section of the Graves Report, it states, BJU Press published a counseling book in 1996 that similarly encourages individuals to report sexual offenses initially to the pastor, and I quote, who will in turn contact the mother or the parents and handle the case in a scriptural manner, end quote. The author also tells counselors that some cases, and I quote, may involve reporting the incident to civil authorities and to, and I quote, check with local authorities in the community in which you serve to find the specifics of laws governing the reporting of such cases, end quote. The report states, Grace received a few reports that Dr. Berg had discouraged victims of sexual abuse during counseling sessions from contacting the police. These participants said Dr. Berg either implied that the offense was, and I quote, an internal issue to be handled by the school, end quote, or explicitly say that the victim should not contact the police for various reasons that could upset internal family dynamics. The report states Dr. Berg adamantly denied all allegations that he had ever implicitly or explicitly discouraged anyone from contacting the police, stating, and I quote, if I know something belongs to the state, I am not going to usurp that authority, at least God's minister to execute wrath, and it doesn't bear the sword in vain. I really believe in that, end quote. Dr. Berg also pointed to his 1992 counseling training video sessions wherein he states he encouraged counselors to report disclosures of sexual abuse at that time. The report states that several victims expressed deep hurt that the crimes perpetrated against them were not reported to legal authorities. Dr. Bergen acknowledged there had been some failures to report some sexual crimes. However, he noted, and I quote, a failure to report, especially early on, was not an attempt to cover up anything. It was pure ignorance of what to do, end quote. The Grace Report says, when discussing some of the reports Grace received alleging that BJU officials had swept things under the rug, Dr. Berg stated, and I quote, honestly, it looks that way. The facts are what they are. It was not handled the way it should have been handled. The motive is not obvious to people, and they can put any motive they want onto the facts. If they have beef, even with us, or even if they don't know, and they hear about other situations where there are intentional cover-ups, it can look like that is our motive, but that is not our motive. The facts are those things were not handled well. They were handled with what we knew, but they were not handled with what we should have known, and I can guarantee you it would be handled differently today. That does make us open for criticism about cover-up, but that is not why it was handled that way. Today, we would have aggressively involved police. It is not a plan to cover it up. We have not suddenly come to a fear-driven response. Oh, we have to make sure we do this now because we have been covering and we're about to be exposed. It is not that. Every time we figured out more, we did that, but I know how it looks. And the report says, Dr. Berg also stated, There is not a culture here to protect BJ image. We will go to the Supreme Court over something we believe and we don't care what people think about it. And if we have done wrong, when we finally realize it, whether it was on our interracial dating thing, we will say it. The report states, Grace also asked Dr. Jones III how he responds to complaints raised by some that the university has not reported some cases out of fear that a report might affect the reputation of the university. Dr. Jones stated that the university does not involve the law when it is unnecessary to do so, but will when an issue is deserving of the law's attention or mandated by the law to do so. Grace also discussed the mandatory reporting laws with Dr. Jones III, who reported that he first became aware of these laws approximately 
10 to 12 years ago, when asked about allegations that some cases had not been reported as required by law in light of his remarks in a November 2011 chapel service, Dr. Jones III remarked, and I quote, well, I can answer each one if I know anything about it. I can answer each one that makes such an allegation. They might have thought it should have been reported, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was mandated that we do. The, the report states, when Grace told Dr. Jones that mandatory reporting laws had been in place since the 1970s, he stated, okay, well, from that time forward, if there was a mandatory reporting requirement, and obviously they should have, if it didn't get reported, that is bad. It may not have been deliberate, they may have just not realized it. Dr. Jones III also stated that because he does not handle these kinds of things in the file on the day-to-day -day basis, these people are expected to know those things, and I expect him to follow the requirements of the law. Dr. Jones III further commented, and I quote, Did a case fall through the cracks? Maybe so. In fact, Stephen and his administration were so sensitive to this, as you are well aware, they engaged Grace because they wanted to take the lead among the Bible Christians to say, this is the way things had to be done. We want to set a standard. We want to give a wake-up call to the Christian community. Knowing in the process of making ourselves vulnerable like this, we didn't do this because anybody charged us with anything. We did it voluntarily because we wanted to know, did something fall through the cracks? If so, we want to know. If we cause that pain, if we can do anything in retrospect to ease that pain, we are ready. We want to. It is not a perfect campus, but is the best we know how. If our best has not been good enough, then we want to hear from those that we have failed with so we can make it right the best we know how. That is where we are. That is us. End quote. Another part of the grave support is about identifying sexual crimes. And the report states, On a number of occasions, sexual abuse and sexual assault appear not to have been reported to law enforcement or DSS officials because they were mislabeled and not identified as sexual crimes. BJU officials on multiple occasions identified sexual crimes as only moral offenses and disciplined the offender for a moral offense instead of reporting the offense as a crime. Dr. Burke stated that in some instances where sexual abuse or assault had been disclosed, and I quote, he says, It never crossed my mind that it was a crime. It was not just that it was not clear. It never crossed my mind. Dr. Berg explained that some offenses were not recognized as sexual crimes because of an inaccurate understanding of the term sexual assault or rape. He stated, and I quote, but I will tell you, even at that point, in approximately 2006 or 2007, I am still thinking of crimes as I would definitely look at this that way, but I am thinking of forcible rape. I am thinking about crimes in that sense. I'm not thinking about an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old having sex together and both of them want to do this. I am not thinking those terms as a crime. I do now. I am not dean of students anymore, but I would certainly ask ages. That would make a difference in how the world sees this as a crime and what our responsibilities are that way. We were very strong in the moral and biblical things and the ethical things, and probably a whole lot stronger than a lot of people would think was reasonable. But in framing that as a legal and criminal thing was not a part of the package of thinking. I am not excusing it. I am just explaining it, okay? When I look at that, I am like in some of those other things, I'm totally embarrassed. I have no defense except ignorance. And I know ignorance of the law is no excuse. I am just throwing that out. There is a great deal of concern we have about God's moral law, but I am not out there looking for what does a secular law say about this too. We are not required as an educational institution to be attending seminars on things 
as a public institution might, and we probably should have been aware of that, but weren't. I know I wasn't, end quote. The report states Dr. Burke acknowledged a failure to recognize sexual crimes in several different scenarios prior to the mid-2000. In one case, the alleged perpetrator touched an adult victim's private parts without her consent while he believed she was sleeping. Dr. Burr reflected, and I quote, We were looking at this as a moral offense, not a criminal offense. Hopefully today we would see that. I know that never even crossed our mind as a criminal activity, end quote. He continued, I quote, Quote, what I'm saying is when I look at this today, I look at this as somebody who is taking sexual opportunities when a person who is not able to defend herself in any way or even resist. Well, that is a criminal effect. That is a criminal thing. That would have never been a thought at that time. End quote. All right. And this was the end of just some of the highlights of the Greg support. Again, Feel free to read the whole thing online. The link is in the show notes. But thank you if you listen to this for listening to all of these hard, difficult abuses. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving Bob Jones University. It would be greatly appreciated if you could give the podcast a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews helps listeners just like you find the show.